Okay, today I'm back in the uh, in the Mayfair Starsworks Mayfair shop with Tom Brownlee. Hello, Tom, Simon. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us. Now, you're the co-founder of BookieBashing.net, and are basically a bookmaker's nightmare. No, I wouldn't say nightmare. That's not quite accurate. So, I think there's a lot of um, toing and froing in the bookmaking business. You've got the punters, you've got the professional punters, you've got the bookmakers, and because money is associated in it. There can be a lot of aggression, a lot of people trying to hold on to their slice of the pie. I don't really see it as nightmare on Elm Street, what we're doing. I think it's a little bit more like a musical. It's a call and retort kind of thing at Bucky Bashing. We're sort of like the Blues Brothers. The community is the band that's, you know, on a mission from God. And yeah, we're, the bookmakers are just trying to send us to Juliet and we're trying to stay out. So no, I wouldn't say that we're a nightmare. Okay, so I'm going to talk just a little bit about your background and then forward it. Um, so you studied algorithms at university, right? But you didn't you didn't put the work to work straight away with uh, gambling. You put them to work working for the government. Well, I did seven years postgraduate research, and that was um, publishing journal papers, going around the world, talking at conferences, and really doing a lot of hard research into the field of um, decision making in mathematics. So this is multi-attribute decision making, how to make optimal decisions. And also prediction, because it was in the field of infrastructure. And so from there, I went to work in Westminster and specifically on the M25 infrastructure. And we would predict how the M25 would deteriorate. And we would advise to the government, if you spend money here, then in the long term, the life cycle is more optimal than not. And there's a lot of um, comparisons between that work of prediction and decision making as there is in betting, in gambling, in poker, and in sports betting as well. Okay, now you have to forgive me here, but algorithms, we hear a lot about them. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there like me that don't know much about them apart from the fact they're a clever right. computer program. So can you tell us in layman's terms, what is an algorithm? They're not even a computer program, they're just a set of rules. It's a set of rules for how you solve a problem. So you have a problem, and a lot of what we do are mathematical problems, and so an algorithm just states, follow these certain rules and you will get from your data sources to some sort of output, to a decision that says, have a bet, don't have a bet, this is value, this is not value. And algorithms take a lot of different forms. You can have algorithms such as genetic algorithms. They're a branch of what people call artificial intelligence, but essentially they're searching through hundreds of thousands of different options or millions of different options, and they're just trying to find the best solution. Or you can have slightly easier um, algorithms, which essentially say that horse behind us is 10 to 1. That's not a bet. No bet. So they have different forms of complexity. Okay, so it sounds like they're you know, perfect for betting. So when did you start to utilise your knowledge of algorithms into gambling? When I was broke, uh, funding my way through that research at university on the stipend of £6,000 a year didn't, uh, didn't provide the best life. And so back in those days, the online poker world was a lot easier than it is today, primarily because it was open to the American market and you could target certain tables to start making some money on online poker. And the algorithms really that in the decision-making that formed a lot of what I was doing. This is this is back in the day where you're looking at certain ranges of poker hands and saying, how often should I be betting these, checking these, raising these, folding these? And um, that led to sort of a lot of, this, you know, back, back in these days before a lot of the theory was online, I started working on how do we come up with solutions to these mathematical problems that are profitable in the long run? So was your first foray into gambling poker, or were you interested in that before? Yeah, no, poker was my first foray. It was, um, you know, I, I was a losing sports better at the time because it was recreational and there was no thought that went into it. But um, poker was something that I was able to make some decent money from online, started playing live around the Midlands, um, and then went over and played live in America. Uh, you suddenly realise that playing live is a little bit easier. But again, it, it comes down to a lot of reviewing exactly how lucky you're running. Because when you're winning, you can be winning because you're, you're good and doing the right things. You can also be winning because you're bad and you got lucky. And so the mathematical framework comes into were you lucky or were you good? 
you know. Yeah, and then you, you told me before we did this interview that you got to a fairly high level, sort of £10,000 sort of buy-ins or whatever. So, but then you started sharing your knowledge. Why well, did you do that? yeah. I mean, this comes back to the academia, which really drives people to sharing information, sharing knowledge. There's a lot of drive in the engineering industry of getting people together in conferences and discussing ideas. One of the worst thing in the engineering industry is collaboration. You often get things going wrong and everyone starts blaming each other. And so there's a huge drive for get together, have conferences, publish your papers, get them peer reviewed, have people go through them and um, critique them and say, you know, I like your idea, but this doesn't look right and this doesn't look right. Now in the gambling world, that doesn't exist so much. There's, a, there's something called the tragedy of the commons. The tragedy of the commons is there you are betting on your particular edge and you're making some money and it's great. But now a few people have heard about it, so they come and they graze on the grass as well until there's so many people grazing on the grass that the land is no longer viable and all the sheep die. Or in, in the gambling world, so many people are betting on it, the bookmaker can notices that he's now losing some money or, the, or your poker player opposite you realises that he's got a leak and they patch it. So it's not intuitive to share information in the gambling world, in the poker world, or in the sports betting world. However, I came from a background where sharing information was paramount. And so I started trying to drive a lot of um, strategy sharing and mathematical framework sharing on um, sites such as the 2 plus 2 poker forums back in the 2000s when they were very, very active and start getting a conversation around, okay, by sharing this information, we are making everyone a little bit better, but I'm now going to encourage you to share your information and to critique me because maybe you'll see something in me that I'm doing wrong that I can improve. And it's that kind of relationship that you really want with people because no one can figure all of this out by themselves, you, unless you're Patrick Veitch, perhaps. But um, for me, definitely, it was beneficial for me to go, I've got a few good ideas and I'm going to share them with you. And I'd love to hear your feedback on my ideas and your ideas as well. And I found over, the t over time, the more you share, the more you do attract people towards you that will share, you know, their good information with you. Okay. Um... This is my ignorance again. Um, one of the things you shared was an equity graph. What's that? So an equity graph uh, takes very many forms. Traditionally, it's a time series, um, and you would put a strategy, a betting strategy, onto a time series, and you would predict uh, how much money you would make or lose over time with this strategy. But I like to take it a little bit further. Um, so uh, I can give you an example of a golf equity graph that I like to produce just now. So... In a golf tournament, you may have 160 different golfers ranging from 9 to 1 up to 1,000 to 1. And they all have relative strengths. I mean, there's a lot of statistics around driving accuracy, greens and regulation, strokes gained off the tee, and so on and so forth. And you can take everyone in the field and compare them to each other. And if you do this, if you compare all golfers to each other, you can plot a graph and you can kind of identify what's known in portfolio theory as an efficiency frontier. This is a, a boundary of golfers, and all of them are good relative to everybody else in their price range in the field. And you can take one of these poker equity graphs, and as long as you can get the right price, which is another problem, but as long as you can get the right price, you should find that you are profitable in the long run. So an equity graph is really explaining visually to you either how successful your strategy should be, or it's making data jump out of a, a graph and assist you with your betting. Okay, so at what point did you realize that um, working on the M25 was a waste of time and you needed to get into this gambling luck? Um, there was a significant issue I was having. Uh, the civil engineering world is besmirched, unfortunately, with um, getting away with not paying their professionals the same amount as they do in other industries. And so I was quite well qualified. I am a chartered um, civil engineer and I did seven years of postgraduate work and I've got all the letters after my name and still I was returning multiple times my career income through gambling winnings through 2008, 9, 10, coming up through the 2010s. And unfortunately as well, the civil engineering world is a world where 60, 70 hour weeks are expected. And um, I remember being sat in the office 
and uh, a particular horse came in on a, on a Thursday afternoon and that one horse profited more than my entire month income. And at the same time, my daughter was born and I'm sat in the office and not at home with her. And it, it no longer made sense to me. I, I actually asked my director, I said, um, can I take nine months sabbatical from work to figure out what I want to do when I grow up? And he said, um, well, what are you going to do for the nine months? And I said, probably gamble and spend time with my children. And he said, don't write that down on the form. Write down on the form you're going to do an accountancy course. And I think at that moment, this is back in 2014, I stared around and I thought, I can't do this anymore. I, said, I know what I like. I know what I enjoy. I know the problem solving. It is the same in civil engineering, but it just doesn't pay enough. So I left, um, I left consulting the government back then, and I haven't looked back since, to be fair. <laughs> Okay, Tom, I, I stopped that a little bit early there in part one because um, you say you like to share your knowledge. Now, you, you told me that uh, there are four dark arts, so I want you to go through these dark arts with me okay. and uh, tell us. So we're going to start off with edge identification. Right, now let's just look at a path between um, where you are now or where any, anybody is just now and becoming a professional better. I've known a lot of them over time. And some of them are very skilled in one of these four areas, maybe two, maybe three. It's difficult to be skilled in all four, and all four take work. The first one is edge identification. Now, obviously, if you're going to be beating the markets, or even if you're going to be beating poker, you need to have an edge. You need to have uh, the, the edge on your side. And I've been through many different syndicates over my time, and one of my roles and responsibilities was to identify where we can get edges. And um, edges come and go over time. Sometimes edges come and you just ruin them. One of the, one of the big ones that we ruined, I mean, you can loosely categorize them into, um, in this country, we benefit from each-way exploitation, which most people will be familiar about. Um, there is chasing steamers um, and hopping on them, making sure that you get the right price and basically utilizing the power of smart money. So when the price is coming down, as long as you can get in early enough, there's no skill in that. You're just following other people's intelligence. But I think the real big thing is pricing things up yourself from first principles in edge identification, because in order to, most of the time when, for example, there is a good price, the bookmaker can either be cutting it or comparing it against the exchange, or if they're a top price outlier, then it's not very sustainable uh, betting on them this long term. So if we can price things up ourselves, then this is definitely a bonus. And one of the things we did with the William Hill Great Sports Offers, anyone that's walked into a William Hill betting shop in the last 10 years will have seen the screen with 25 buttons on the bottom. And you could have the the sports bet of the day and the sports bet could be something like um, over one corner every 15 minutes of the game in both the New York and Estac Troy's matches. I mean, really kind of weird and bizarre things they were putting up there. And they thought that they were all, you know, bad bets for the punters, good bets for William Hill. And I remember we were standing in the shop staring at one of these, very difficult to work out precisely in shop because they require a bit of mathematical framework behind them but the odds just didn't look the odds looked great for the punter so we got into a process of um collecting all 25 william hill uh, great sports offers every day for years and years and years and we would work out the value of all 25 and in order to work them out we started building up our own models we would um, price things up ourselves you can't just go into the markets and find what the market price is for a court over one corner every 15 minutes in New York and Estat Troy's. You, you have to put the work in yourselves. And we would find that every day 20 would be bad, two or three would be thin, and two would be great. And it was every day of the week. So we did this for a long time. We were talking big limits. I mean, they were taking 500,000 pound bets on these. Sometimes, you know, the odds are 10 to one, 20 to one. And then, um, um, that enabled us, until we killed it, to um, profit significantly from William Hill. Uh, unfortunately, if you walk in now, you'll still see the hardware with the 25 buttons, but you'll no longer see the William Hill Great Sports Offers. We take full responsibility for that, and we do apologise to anyone that was hitting them hard. So the first dark art, take some responsibility, price things up yourself, and identify where your edges are. Okay, the second dark art, everybody 
bones about getting yeah. on. Well, of course, people moan about it, but remember, this is a uh, this is a game. I mean, there's a theory in poker, or there's a a component of poker that let's say I'm in my opponent's shoes and I get queen ten suited, and I push all in, and then I look down. And I would have done that if I was my opponent. This is critically important. I'm looking at my opponent. If I was him and I got queen 10 suited, and I, I would go all in. And I'm looking down and I see a pair of 10s and I think, well, I'm going to have to call. And I call and I see queen 10 suited. I can't immediately think you're an idiot. And if I lose the hand, I can't just smash my tripod against the wall and think, I'm, what was the guy doing with queen 10 suited? You have to put yourself into the other person's shoes. And you have to say, if I was him, I would have done the same thing. And a lot of the times with the bookmaker, if I'm the bookmaker, I don't want to take a single penny out of me. So the, f the first thing everyone, I think, needs to do if taking the betting seriously is to stop worrying uh, and moaning about restrictions and difficulty and start focusing on the problems of how are you going to get on. If you're betting at soft bookmakers online, you have to understand that's not a reasonable way to be betting professionally and sustainably over the long run. Um, there are solutions to shop bookmakers. Look up and down the country, there are shops. There are shops down every single high street. There's plenty of value in these shops and they're traditionally a lot easier to get money down on uh, anonymously and higher stakes with fewer restrictions. And then the next one being, of course, exchanges. Exchanges can be full of markets that are biased, that, um, that have value seeping into them. And rather than just sitting around worrying about how to get on at soft bookmakers, maybe it's easier to focus on how can we uh, improve our shop game, how can we improve our exchange game, and then if we do solve those problems and we do have access to online soft bookmakers, we suddenly realise there's so much value there that that is so easy compared to the first two things that's shooting fish in a barrel. Staking optimally. Yeah, so staking optimally is critically important especially if doing this profession i have a mortgage to pay and children to feed so five and ten pound bets at evens aren't really going to be doing me a lot of um a lot of favor so i have to stake as high as i possibly can without going broke and this is important because i could put all my bankroll now all the money i have in the world on the next race but if it loses then i'm in trouble uh, and i speak to a wide variety of professional bettors and no matter how high they stake they always ask the question am i staking high enough and this can be boiled down to looking at different staking methodologies. You could be betting a unit win, a unit loss, a Kelly staking um, strategy. So unit win, every bet wins £1,000. Unit loss, £10, and every bet doesn't matter the odds. And Kelly, you're changing the stake based on the perceived value of your bet. Now, unit loss sounds like a stupid one. Why would you bet £10 at evens and £10 at 100 to 1? For well, two reasons. One's logistics. If you're putting a lucky 15 on with four different horses in a shop, you don't want to be sitting down with a calculator in the shop trying to do some mental gymnastics of what the perfect value staking is for that. In fact, you're, you're killing volume by trying to be a little bit more precise. So in some situations, unit loss is actually a valuable way of um, staking. Most of the time, Kelly is a good way of um, staking where, you know, if I'm offering you uh, six to four on a coin flip, you probably want to be going down to the cash machine and taking most that you, you can afford to take out and betting on that because that's not an opportunity that you're going to be seeing very often. But everything boils down to betting high enough by mathematically looking at the different staking options, looking back at past histories and seeing how they would have performed in terms of return on investment in real-world data. Okay, psychological management. And again, this is, this is, the, this is the strange one because... When betting, nobody can just be a robot. Perfectly, in a perfect world, you would be an Excel spreadsheet where win or lose, you just total up what happened at the end of the day. But we've all been at the end of a brutal losing run and thinking, can I be bothered to continue doing this anymore? Um, one of the ways through that is certainly syndication. People that do this on, by themselves, they don't have a lot of longevity people that work in syndicates, it's very difficult to start being lazy in a syndicate because there's always that guy that has the drive of, come on, let's go again. You know, we've lost for the last three months, but we know that we've just been running bad and it's going to turn. And it inevitably does. The worst thing you can do is lower your volume or change your strategies based on a little bit of variance that's, um, that's creeped into um, your 
betting history. And so working on your psychological management, trying to figure out how it doesn't affect your mood so that you don't get in a bad mood at the t dinner table in front of your children, but also having the drive to continue through losing runs is critically important. And the other bit, surround yourself by good people. That harps back to the, um, the bit about um, conferences, a bit about communities, trying to get people to share information with you because by bouncing around with these people and sharing it, the losing runs, they can turn around and go, you know, I had a similar one last year, but you do get through it and it really genuinely helps. So working on the psychological ma management is an important aspect of professional betting. Okay, now anybody watching this so far, be quite refreshed that you're giving, like say, you like to share your knowledge. So this yeah. one, okay. all you professional gamblers, you always talk about expected value. Yes. Now I've asked people before and they're either reluctant or it's just like a sixth sense. Right, So okay. how do you come to an accurate expected value okay so expected value um is the back odds that you're getting divided by the fair odds that you make the bet now so we can delve down here the back odds is easy we know what that is what is the fair odds this is what it comes down how can we estimate what the fair odds is for anything happening of course with a coin flip we know it's 0.5 but what is it for the horse to win what is it for radicano to win how do we model our sports betting so we have a hybrid approach, and this is extremely important. Our hybrid approach is to first, we price everything up ourselves from first principles. We take a lot of data. Let's say we have data for a football match. We take the expected goals for both teams in the football match. And from there, I can build up a scoreline, a correct score scoreline from 0-0 to 20-20. There are various different probability distributions used to do this. It's not quite a binomial distribution, meaning that each goal isn't independent of the goal that's happened before it. The longer a game goes on nil-nil, the more likely it is to be nil-nil. If you get a game that's two all at half time, it's probably going to end up 5-4. So more goals make more goals. So work out what your probability distribution is. And if I can sum up everything from nil-nil to 20-20, add in a bit of bias for nil-nil and everything else that comes into these probability distributions, there's my, there's my price for the market. And I can just sum up. 1-0-2-0-2-1-3-0-3-1-3-2, all the way up to 2019, and I've got my odds of the team to win. However, and critically, the hybrid model says that I've now done this, and now the market over here, the exchanges, even the bookmakers' prices, are starting to say something different. Money's coming in. I would be a complete idiot to say, well, my price is right, and these prices have got it wrong. There's so much information in the markets that has to be brought in and put into your model when things are happening, when there's a delta price change. So the hybrid model takes our market that's been calculated from first principles and it merges what information is out there and we come up with a hybrid model. And now I've got my fair odds for nil-nil to 2020 20 in the game. I sum them all up and I can find out that Manchester United to win and both teams to score is... 4.232 in my model and I can go and get four to one at Star Sports or on the exchange and I have myself a value bet and that is how we benchmark um, EV or expected value at bookie bashing. We uh, determine the fair odds and it's the back odds divided by those fair odds equals the expected value. Okay Tom, so we took the last bit. You mentioned at the end there bookiebashing.net. One of the things you say uh, you recognise variance and apply appropriate bank row management. Now, variance is just you can't odds uh, six even money shots losing in a row. Is that right? Or uh, mathematically, variance is the sum of the value of the observed um, amount minus the mean of all the observed values, all squared divided by the number of observations minus one. Now, that's mathematically what it is. Um, and what it does mean is that, let, okay, let's take our coin again. Let's flip it, Simon. And I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give you two to one if you win and you can pay me even money if you lose. So it's going to be 10 pound bets. I'll take a 10 if you lose and I'll give you 20 if you win. Now, variance suggests that two to the power of 10 times, I'm going to win head, 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 head. A thousand, uh, thousand and twenty-four to one, a thousand twenty-three to one. So, one every one thousand and twenty-four times, you're going to lose one hundred pounds. Your question you ask yourself 
is that am I okay with that? Um, nine out of ten times, I'm go you're going to oh, well flip that around. One out of ten times, you're going to lose a hundred quid. Two out of ten times, you're going to lose thirty quid. So you start looking at it as I really don't want to lose my hundred pounds, but it's only going to happen once every thousand times. Is this acceptable to me? Is this variance acceptable to me? And it can be a strange thing, variance. We have a relatively um, successful golf tracker and what we do is we independently proof a, a number of golfers every single week. Now in 2019, if you started with a thousand pounds, you would now have nearly 10,000 pounds, just over a shade over 9,000 pounds in your bankroll. And the graph really looks like that. So this sounds like the easiest thing in the world. Zoom in on the graph, there's a 12-month period where we broke even just slightly lost, right in the middle. Now, can you sit there for 12 months, week after week, betting on golf tournament, and then after a whole year, you look back and go, I didn't make any money in the last 12 months. Well, you ask yourself two questions. Do I quit or do I continue? And the only way that you can answer that mathematically is studying the variance. How unlucky was that? And if you can turn around and go, that was only meant to happen once every four or five years. And so it would be extremely happen, unlucky to happen in the next year. You might think, okay, let's reload, let's keep on going, and I'm happy with the strategy. And if the variance simulation said that was only meant to happen once every thousand years, you might want to turn around and go, I think I might have got something wrong in my mathematical modeling here because that sounds a bit unlikely to have occurred in my lifetime. Now, does that mean there's a purple patch ahead, a really good purple patch ahead, or is that not relevant at all? Uh, well, the, we've, we've lost in the last um, year and we shouldn't have done, or the variance calculation simulation is showing that we shouldn't have done. What's going to happen now, uh, this week in the Live Portland tournament, has absolutely no relationship to what happened um, last week. This, of course, this is the gambler's fallacy argument. And I, also, I found it very interesting with the gambler's fallacy. There was a, some psychologists that they asked a bunch of five-year-olds. They said... Um, I'm going to flip a coin and five times and it goes heads, 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 heads. What's it going to be on the fifth flip? And almost all of the five-year-olds said tails because the universe owes a debt to what has previously happened, this being the gambler's fallacy. You get to 10, you get to 12, you get to 15 years old and you find that the percentage of people reduces down to about 15%. But then at 15%, it just stops. And forever in life, 15% of people will still say it'll be tails next time thinking that what's about to happen has a relationship with what's happened in the past. Um, perhaps this is something to do with, it's an argument that may need to be, I think, brought to the surface in terms of problem gambling and things like that. But um, certainly, looking forward, your historical events, unfortunately, that losing run means nothing. All you can do is continue trying to make your best solution, your best um, decision making with the information that you have at hand. Okay, and you say that you compound value whenever you can. Right, okay, so uh, two singles. Uh, this one's 105% uh, EV, and this one's 105% EV. So I take both singles, I've made, I've made 10%. I've added the two together, right? Um, but if I compound and multiply them together, I've made 10.25%. When you multiply two different plus EV uh, bets together, the product is more than the sum of the parts. Now, this can work really well in your favor in the same way that bookmakers like to push accum accumulators. Negative EV bets compound on the bookmaker side, positive EV bets compound on the professional punter side. With the added bonus that Matt Trenhill was telling me, he did a study of, uh, this was for some bookmaker or some sports betting service, a study of what indicator uh, is uh, the number one indicator for determining if somebody is a shop customer or not. And it is the placing of singles. So people that place multiples tend to be recreational. Well, as a professional punter, we've got two things in our favor now. We're compounding the value, we're creating money out of thin air, we're turning water into wine, whilst simultaneously avoiding detection and avoiding restrictions. And all of a sudden, compounding value is our best friend. And so through football coupons to lucky 15 horses to even golf tournaments where I like to take the PGA winner and throw it in with the DP World Tour winner, compounding value has many benefits and very few side effects.
Okay, now you, you also said that you're not tipsters, but you benchmark your bets against appropriate sources. How does that work? Transparency is key. So um, I mean, we all laugh, really, I hope, at Twitter tipsters, but anybody that says, I think Manchester United are going to win tonight and 3-1 to one is a good price, the first immediate reaction should be, why? What data has gone into that? Where are you benchmarking it? How have you come up with the fair odds? Where is the algorithms in the background? So what I always like to do is I don't just like to provide bets. I make sure that the data source from which I've got my bets is um, referenced and live. So I have databases for corners, goals, cards, 180s and darts and all these things. And they're all live and they all move as the market moves. And if at any one time you want to come and take a bet that I've suggested, you can drill all the way down into the data and make sure that you agree with the data. If you don't agree with the data, don't take the bet. That's the personal responsibility. So first of all, we're not tipsters because we provide the data from which we have determined that these are good bets. And then secondly, all of our calculations and methodologies are open, they're transparent, they're written up, and they're available for um, um, sort of criticism, sort of positive criticism. And so um, that, I think, benefits in a lot of ways because, you know, there have been occasions we've simply got something wrong. We can't ever get everything perfect every time. And the benefit of having all of these things transparent is somebody in the community sticks their hands up and goes, guys, that doesn't look right. And that benefits all of us because we can then go and fix it. Which, which brings me nicely on to going back to your backstory. Mm -hmm. um, your generosity sharing your knowledge for free online led to you being approached by syndicates, which I assume ended up being a profitable experience for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, the syndicates are, uh, are definitely an, uh, not an easy way of making money, but they certainly make money in a, an industrial fashion that is almost impossible to do by yourself. I was actually in an um, early sports betting forum posting some equity graphs, and 24 of us formed a WhatsApp group. Again, this wasn't quite the syndicate, but we were all starting to share information a little bit more privately than on a public forum. And um, I don't know if you've heard the, um, the birthday paradox where if there are 23 people in the room, it's 50-50 that two people will share a birthday because of the pair two trade-offs between everyone's birthdays. And um, when there's 24, it's now odds on. And because there were 24, I happened to um, have, be having a few drinks on my, it could have been my 28th birthday. And um, I said to someone, I will put a lot of money down that two people in this group share a birthday. Someone took me up on that bet. Everyone had to get their IDs out, which was a bad mistake on my part because with, with syndicates, these people have access to a lot of IDs and so could have rigged the result against me. And as it transpired, I lost the bet, but I won favour with uh, a chap who I'm meeting actually after this interview um, who runs a number of syndicates and I got involved with them mostly working around edge identification and modelling and things like that. Okay, now these syndicates were primarily hitting the shops were you did you sort of get sure. involved with the nitty-gritty of that i have done it uh, occasionally um you have people that are great at hitting the shops generally if you walk in shuffle look at your feet um nervously ask for 200 pounds at 10 to 1 at the counter you're going to get phoned up and you're going to get ptl because they don't like you i find that great runners will come into the shop with coffee and donuts for the girls behind the counter they're, they're quite good at flirting they're just likable people now i sit in the middle ground i'm not the greatest greatest flirter in the world but neither do i think i shuffle and look at my feet unfortunately i live a little bit out in the sticks up in worcestershire and i'm um, recently i put a, a coupon bet on in the betfred in worcestershire um Got a, ran a little bit hot on this coupon bet, which is 35 trebles of seven teams, and um, I won about £14,500. And going in to pick this up from Betfred, and it's not Betfred's fault, but I had to unfortunately bypass a couple of alcoholics and drug users that were sleeping outside the door as I went in. And then as they started um, sort of settling this for me, um, these guys are nervously shuffling into the shop, and I stood out like a sore thumb up there. I, I'm sure in the Mayfair offices of Star Sports, that thing is the kind of thing that happens multiple times a day, every day, and it would be a little bit more conspicuous. Up at my local betting shop, not so much. So, unfortunately, I've got to give them a little bit of a wide berth and rely on other people to get on for me. We do now, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, how big an operation was it? 
Um, so I've been on a few different syndicates. Um, the, the minimum is about four. I think you need about a minimum of four to make these things work. I've been on some that have been um, as high as about 25. And um, these guys, they, they would hit particular horse races and they'd be looking at, you know, six-figure returns from the horse races with million-pound turnovers going on them. And um, um, they're extremely well organized. The, the guy that sits at the top, it's the organizational skills that gets this together. You need people management skills. You need to be able to get a lot of money moving and chopping and changing, which over time does get a little bit harder because you have to start explaining it to various places where it's come from. And say, oh, yeah, this person I didn't know just had to transfer me 10 grand because he was on the horse that had to win kind of a thing. So they can be quite sizable, these syndicates. Okay, you mentioned, I think, in the first part that you, you were looking for new edges. Yeah. Where do you start looking for a new edge? Um, uh, you start by staring and staring and staring at the odds that are available. So nobody can come up with an edge without knowing what markets are available to identify. And one of the, um, one of the things we have to do, again, at Bookie Bashing, is we have to split edges into things that can take sustainability and money being placed on them and things that cannot. So one of the things that always intrigued me was the requester bets, the what odds paddies, the pick your punts, the your odds, these same game multiples or same game parlays that exist um, in football games. These are the kind of bets that the bookmaker loves them because they think they're all bad, but there are tens of thousands of them for every game. And from that perspective, just that's those two facts. There are tens of thousands of them for every game and the bookmaker thinks they're all good for the bookmaker. I think I want to get an edge. I want to somehow find a way of coming up with a model that does my own modeling for corners, cards, player bets and um, goals in time periods of a game. I want to find a way of scraping all the request bets and the your odds. I want to model them myself. And then I want to rank them. And, you know, if there are tens of thousands of uh, bets out there, I bet the top few are good if we can go and bet on them. So it's about opportunity. Whereas an Irish horse race um, at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon um, and the only way you can get value is betting on a horse that is a higher price than the exchange, there's no sustainability in that. There's no long-term. So, yes, it could be a long-term strategy, but no, you're not going to be able to do it over and over again and continue to profit from it. So it's about looking at the opportunity and how sustainable it is. Okay, you touched, you touched on in the last part about various markets within a single event. So... Um, Talk about expected cards, corners, and how their independency relate. Sure. As, as, as well as you used to do sort of models on horse racing and go. So can you sort of elaborate on all that? Yeah, right. I mean, a really, really good edge. Well, I can come to them. So we've got um, three different, really, mathematical frameworks that we can talk about here. There's one around um, the interdependency in football. There's another around golf, and there's another around um, horse racing. And I'm happy to go through all three. So the interdependency of cards, corners, and goals is a really fascinating one. And there are, there are currently plenty of edges for people out there it's not the kind of thing that is going to survive a lot of money being thrown at it but if you're a team of two or a team of three and you go and research and you go and um, have a look at what's available both online and in bookmaker shops you can see a lot of bets such as um stack troys to get a corner every 15 minutes and the goal in each half now let's break down the composition of that bet stack troys to get let's say three corners every 15 minutes. So we're talking about nine corners in the first half, nine corners in the second half. That would be quite extreme, but there is a, there is a, a fun little mathematical concept in corners called clustering. As soon as a team gets a corner, they're more likely to get the next corner. So this is the perfect example of something that is not a binomial distribution. All events are not independent of each other. How do you come up with a way of modeling the clustering of corners? Um, now, if stack choice are going to get nine corners in the first half, some people would argue, well, they must be getting loads of goals because it's all attack, attack, attack. Actually, there's a reverse thing going on. The goals aren't going in. That's why they're getting the corners. The keeper's making the saves. And so you find that the more corners a team has over their expectancy, the fewer goals they will have in their expectancy. And there's a relationship. And you, you can't just take corners and multiply by goals. You have to start combining the relationships between a team getting more corners. And you've got to say, if they get more corners, they're not going to get many goals. Now I'm going to add cards in. How do cards relate to each other? Well, if a team 
gets cards, you could argue that the other team is now going to be likely to get cards because there's fisticuffs and there's aggression on the pitch. And flip that on its head, if something fundamentally changes like a lockdown and there is no crowd in, in, the, um, in the stands, the cards for both teams can... Well, we did see they reduced to a 10-year low in the Premiership and the top European leagues. But that also has a knock-on effect. It dropped down the, expect the number of goals and the number of corners. There was just low action. Everything's related. And so the interdependency comes up with a set of models of how do we relate corners back to cards, how do we relate goals, and then critically, how do time periods come into play? What's going to happen in the first half? Is it completely independent of the second half? Or if the team is 1-0 up or 2-0 up at half time, do they have a reason to protect the lead? Now, if they're not independent, we need to go down the route of Markov chains, which is going to be a whole interview by itself, Markov chains. And we tend to avoid them because they can be relatively mathematically complex, difficult for people to understand. But if we can suggest that the two time periods are independent, we have reasons to think that if a team's 2-0 up at half-time, they're still going to be pushing for more goals in the second half. We find that there can be value a lot, at many, many places. One of the play, A lot of the shop coupons do a team to score in both halves. And um, this is a market that isn't liquid on the exchange or isn't available on the exchange. So they've no idea, the bookmakers, when they should be cutting it. And we just come up with some crazy prices um, compared to what the bookmaker has uh, come up with. And we can go and put these into um, multiples. We've been doing very, very well in terms of return on investment in these markets. But again, the best markets that we do, they're either two time periods put together or they are two um, um, uh, attributes, cards, corners or goals within a match multiplied together with the interdependency um, coefficients factored in. So it all boils down to these relationships. It all boils down to what is your expected cards in the match, your expected corners in the match, and your expected goals in the match. And critically, work these things out yourself and then have a look at the market and see if the market agrees with you or if you have to adjust from what you see over here. Okay, and this is probably a daft question, but what's the easiest sport to model? I like first goal scorer a lot. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's probably not my most profitable uh, market, but I enjoy it. And the reason why, if you ever look at the, the exchanges are a good indication of how varied the opinion is. Um, you can have team news, which is always critical to the first goal scorer market. But from team news, um, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, who famously did this every game for Portugal in the Euros, would go from 5.0 down to 3.6. Now, is that because he's, all the recreational punters are jumping in on him because um, they like to bet on Cristiano Ronaldo? Or is that because there's something fundamentally that has changed with the formation of the team? Is it because smart money knew something that other people didn't know when it was up at 5.0? Or is it just because this market, really, there's no one real solution to it. There's many different ways of modelling it. My preferred technique is taking... Um, come up with some sort of indicator, some utility function for the expected goals that each player has in a game. Player XG divided by match XG, so the expected goals for the player divided by the expected goals in the match equals your first goal scorer price. Few other things to consider there, like nil-nil, but don't, don't necessarily worry about those just now. And you can come up with FGS, and you're staring at the exchanges and the bookmaker prices going, I genuinely think I've got a price here that is a lot lower than the prices that are available in the market and i cannot explain why the market is up here and at that point we have a bet and that is why i enjoy first goal scorers so much you don't get to see those huge discrepancies in many different markets so what's the life expectancy of your average betting model um 10 seconds and forever so 10 <laughs> 10 seconds because things can change all the time lockdown had a huge fundamental change of a lot of the um models that we were using but i also say forever in that once the essential mathematical framework is in place that should be correct forever we have a golf betting model um the way it works is that you may have noticed that the each way terms for pga and dp world events just now are crazy you go over here you get five places one to four six places one to five eleven places one to five i think someone went 12 places one to five and they keep on going they, there's a bit of one upsmanship until someone's going to be offering 100 places one to five and everyone will be one to 100 in that field but um 
the interesting thing about that is that how do you model that? Well, if we know the probability or estimate the probability of each golfer finishing exactly second, exactly third, exactly fourth, exactly fifth, exactly sixth, then we can come up with our own benchmarking of expected value for every golfer in the field at every bookmaker in all of the terms. And that model is correct from now until the end of time. But what is the issue with it? Our inputs need to be correct. The way that we assess the probability of each player finishing second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, that's what can change. And perhaps there'll be a new statistic that's available next week. And all of a sudden, all the shops and all the bookmakers are using this statistic. If we're not using it, we're now a step behind everybody else. So that's why I say the model itself, the framework should last forever, but the data that goes into it can change day by day. So the, this data, it, yeah. have you got an accurate source or do you literally have to sit there and count the, the corners, the goals, the, you know, all this sort of thing, or is there somewhere you can trust that you could lift it from and just input it? Depends on the sport. Um, I know a lot of darts, um, successful dart syndicates, what they do is they send um, bots around the internet to actually scrape every three dart combination thrown in every game and they log their own data and because they've got they've got these databases that aren't necessarily they're not available on the internet you can't go to flash scores and pick up a game from last year and have a look at the three dart combination throughout the entire um, match because they've stored this data themselves um, they have an edge over the field but there are other sports i mean football horse racing and golf the three ones that we primarily hit there is so much information available online um that it with a little bit of nuance and knowing where to look anybody should be able to pick this up and should be able to play with it and model it themselves okay so you've got successful horse racing models yes so our horse we have um a horse racing tracker we've been running this for the better part of a decade we were quite proud in 2022 in the betting awards we were voted the number one the gold trophy for the uh, best horse racing tipster in the UK. Now, I wouldn't necessarily, we're not tipsters. We have a tracker that will return automatically um, sometimes hundreds of good horses to bet on every day. And we have a few rules. We will never highlight a horse that is higher at the bookmaker than the exchange. There's just no point in betting on those arbitrage opportunities. And the way that we have tried to price this up ourselves, we call it the BB Algo. This was something we came up with by using a technique called regression analysis. We took 2 million horses all the way back to 2020 from Timeform. So anyone can pay for Timeform and get these 2 million horses. And we said, if the field is this big and of this composition and the odds are three to one, what are the what historically were the chances of this horse finishing second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth? This throws in a bit of a misnomer into the horse racing world because the racing post, Sky Sports Racing, they like to push this... Um, concept that by looking at form, by knowing that it's a three-year-old mare, by uh, studying which stalls it's starting in and how the course is being watered, you can get an edge and win or be successful at horse racing. From a sports fan point of view, I couldn't tell you the difference between red rum and shishkin. I don't really know what blinkers are, but I do understand the mathematical components of regression analysis and each way betting. And through doing that, um, we've had a horse racing tracker over the last 50,000 plus EV horses that we've documented. We have a return on investment of over 5%. I challenge anyone to, uh, to do better than that. Okay, now we'll talk about boogiebashes.net. You say it's one of the largest paid subscription communities. Uh, how many members have you got? We've always had in the number of a few hundred. We tend to be a little bit volatile based on um, Results, as, as I referred to earlier, if we go a year and we break even on golf, it takes a certain character to, um, to stick that out and to continue into the second year. Um, and we, at the end of lockdown, had a lot of people leaving at that point. Um, but fortunately, we tend to find that the, the long-termers, they tend to stick these things through and they stick around. So a few hundred people um, who are mostly collaborative and um, they are we call it advantage play because we want to separate ourselves both from the arbitrage communities which are the largest communities out there and we want to separate ourselves from the tipsters who lack transparency in terms of advantage play value betting i don't believe there is another community the size of ours out there 
Um, how many would you say of your subscribers will actually bet for a living using the knowledge they get from you? Yeah, quite a, quite a few of them. Um, you tend to have um, guys that um, have runners who are also at the site and they will manage these runners either by a hourly wage or a percentage of equity or stakes going down. Some of them have runners that have runners, so they're pre pretty well-greased organisations. We have um, ex um, uh, uh, heads of industry and um, uh, compilers um, at Bookie Bashing. We have uh, poker players that have reached the, the final table of the main event of the World Series of Poker, play the poker professionally. Um, but we also have recreational punters. We have people that, um, you know, they just want to log on to the horse racing tracker twice a day, place the lucky 15s, and hopefully that, that covers their subscription by the end of the month. All right, well, finally, it's been... Brilliant talking to you, but you're obviously very intelligent. You're extremely gifted in maths. Do your members have to be of a similar ilk to you to make it pay? So we divide things by three areas, trackers, tools, and a, and a hub, which has some education. Now, there are a, a certain number of people that they're either um, time short, the short on time, or they don't have the willingness to want to learn, maybe they're scared, they don't want to be talking about binomial distributions, they don't want to be thinking about Poisson distributions and XG and stuff like that. Well, you can you can use our trackers, you go on, we have request a bet, your odds, horse racing, golf, and it's quite, it's as easy as pick a bet and go and bet on it. And all of these are independently proofed and in profit. However, the more high-staking professional outfits. This is where the tools come in place. If you can understand the mathematics and you can use various different tracking tools, there are edges almost everywhere. It's just you need to go and find them yourselves. And you tend to find the people that make the most amount of money are the people that do understand the mathematics. But do it generally in quiet, in the corner, Harping back to what I said earlier, not sharing it with everyone and not being that collaborative, but because of the tragedy of the commons, because if everyone knows about it, they lose their edge and all the sheep come and graze in the field and the grass dies. Okay, the EV so, grass. So if you want to go and graze on that field as well, it's uh, bookiebashes.net. Bookiebashing.net, that's right. Uh, Tom Brownie, thank you very much. Cheers, Simon. Thank you.